everyone. This is ETS on the Grid. My name is Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is my co-host Aaron Hardick. How's it going? It's going well, Dylan. I'm actually in the Z Prime headquarters today with Aaron Pan. We are doing some EV road trip part two planning in East in East Texas. So it's a good day. Ooh, that's exciting. Uh, where where can we find updates on that when that's done? Um, we'll probably come out with our road trip itinerary schedule within the next week or two. But for our podcast listeners, we'll be visiting a few small towns in Texas like Navasota and Taylor, Dodge, even a small town called Cut and Shoot. So there's a little preview for our podcast listeners. And all those towns sound made up. Nope, I promise they are real places on the map. Fair enough. I'm not in the Z Prime office. I'm in the office in my new place in Spokane, which I'm soundproofing today, but uh, it's, there might, if there's a little bit of an echo. I apologize. What does um, that soundproofing for you entail? <laughs> like, so I. What, well, there's. I'm gonna. I'm getting a couple of those soundproofing foam panels, and I'm gonna be putting them on. Uh, the north and south wall, and then I'm getting uh, thick curtains that keep sound and temperature out for the windows, and I'm going to be getting a rug. That's actually some pretty significant soundproofing, more than I had expected, so nice job. That's neither here nor there now. We're going to be talking about decarbonization today and climate change, and that is a kind of a depressing topic. So before then, um, Aaron, you, you mentioned in Slack this morning that today is a, is a joke day. Oh, national tell a joke day. Oh my goodness. Um, I, I love that sort of thing. Cause I, as a self-professed dad with no kids, just have a collection of, uh, of groaner jokes. Like, I mean, but do you know when a joke becomes a dad joke? No. When it's a parent. <laughs> I see Thank what you. you did there, Dylan. <laughs> I have a question for you, Aaron. What is the difference between a hippo and a zippo? I don't know, Dylan. What? One's really heavy and the other is a little lighter. <laughs> a little ah, a little lighter. I get it. <laughs> yes. And on that note, uh, we're going to take a break and be right back with Dr. Carolyn Kassan. Back today on the show, we have Dr. Carolyn Kassan, who is the academic director of the Masters in Global Affairs and Masters in Global Security, Conflict, and Cybercrime, as well as a clinical professor where she teaches graduate level courses examining the geopolitics of energy, comparative energy politics, environment and resource security, and a regional course focusing on Central Asia at New York University. How are you doing today, Carolyn? I'm great, Dylan. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate you um, having me on your podcast today. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about education on this podcast, both as it regards to informing the public and to preparing a new generation of energy professionals and energy savvy consumers. Uh, so as an educator yourself, what do you see your role as? How are you uh, making a difference? 
Well, first off, thank you. I'm so happy, and I really appreciate the fact that you take the time to make education a part of this podcast. For myself, um, I think one of my – the way that I look at my role is to educate and to give students the opportunity to explore and to expose them to energy and to sort of the broad – a really broad, but yet going drilling down in terms of understanding energy. You know, ultimately, I hope that, you know, my classes and the interactions that I have with students kind of spark a lot of curiosity that they want to go then, you know, deeper into sort of understanding the role that energy plays in our lives. Um, so I'm very careful about how I sort of curate and I organize the content so that, you know, students can not just get a, you know, not just get a foundation understanding, but, you know, understand how a city like New York keeps the lights on, how we sort of move energy uh, from country to country, you know, to kind of really give them those sort of, those insights, and then hopefully that they can, you know, apply them and take them out into their lives and their and the jobs. Um, another thing that I think is really important, and I'm always somewhat struck when I talk to people who haven't been exposed to learning about energy, is the misunderstandings, and I think it's taken for granted. I think it's one of the biggest things in our lives that we don't sort of stop and say, this is kind of amazing that, you know, we can walk into our homes and turn on the lights and that we can get in a car and go where we want to go. We can travel. Um, and that's something that I think we we have here, but there's still swaths of the world that, you know, experience energy poverty that don't have reliable, nor do they have affordable access to energy. And, you know, that's something that I hope that my students will be involved in, in alleviating uh, that gap. What would you say, Carolyn, is the general interest level of your students? Do you feel like they are enthusiastic about learning more about energy? Or do you feel like you're still kind of just throwing this at them? It, I would assume it, it, this is kind of a, a new area of focus for a lot of universities is implementing this curriculum around understanding energy and the energy system. Do you think that there's interest there? Are you seeing interest? Oh, absolutely. Amongst my students, I mean, I'm very enthusiastic, so I'm sure that that hopefully, um, you know, they sort of feel that and that, you know, uh, I, I, I think, you know, one, I'm, I'm very careful about the faculty that we hire. Um, we are very much an applied uh, type of um, graduate program. So we really sort of think about, you know, it's important to understand theory, but it's really important to understand sort of the day-to-day the -day how systems work. So, for example, we teach global electricity markets. We have someone from Bloomberg New Energy Finance who really brings energy markets to life and helps students, you know, get a much deeper understanding of what that looks like. And, like, I've been amazed over the last 10 years just sort of seeing, you know, where what my students do and where they go after graduation, and um, yeah, I think for the most part they they are very enthusiastic. They want to learn more. I think one kind of funny anecdote that I've heard from people. I also teach the geopolitics of energy, 
and I used to teach, it used to be called the geopolitics of oil, but in 2010, I changed the title and now we look at lots of different uh, types of energy. But other faculty that I know at different universities who teach courses such as the geopolitics of oil are finding there are fewer and fewer students who are actually interested in taking that class because they want to look at other sources of energy. So, you know, many of the students that come to the Center for Global Affairs are interested in working in the renewable space. There's more of an interest in uh, working um, for a utility, which is quite a dramatic change from when I first started at NYU over 14 years ago. And I've actually heard similar things. So one of our quote-unquote friends of the show um, and a gentleman that I, I follow very closely because he's an energy thought leader is Dr. Michael Weber, who leads the a Weber Energy Group out of UT, and he's actually said similar things. University of Texas is traditionally known for sending a lot of talent to go work in oil and gas. However, that talent pool is dwindling because um, students aren't interested in exploring other other forms of energy as well. So that's interesting because we've seen the same thing happen here in Texas too. And if it's happening in Texas, right, I think that's that's very significant. So I think you'd probably see it across the United States in terms of different programs that do offer energy classes, that there's been a, um, a very dramatic uptick in students who, you know, want to go into the renewable energy space, who want to think about, you know, decarbonization. And, you know, they're really interested in sort of pursuing, you know, an academic program that offers the opportunity for them to prepare to enter that space. And another thing you do as a member of the of energy academia is you know you do a lot of hands-on research and you're getting into something new due to a trip you took recently with students. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought that on? Sure. So yeah, in June I took uh, 16 graduate students from NYU to Denmark and Norway. It was part of what we call um, a global field intensive and I've been running global field intensive since 2007. And starting in about 2011, I started to predominantly focus only on energy environmental issues. So in 2016, I took students to Japan to look at Japan's energy security situation five years after Fukushima. Um, I took students to China to understand sort of China's um, growing role in sort of the um, uh, in terms of their energy demand needs and how they're satisfying that, that demand. Uh, and this year I really wanted to expose students to what the Scandinavian countries are doing, um, partially because I'm a comparativist by training and I, I thought, you know, what better way to sort of better understand what what states and cities are doing here in the United States and to look at sort of two countries that are, you know, have very ambitious plans towards decarbonization, you know, more so in, in terms of Denmark than, than Norway, but, you know, both have um, climate goals in terms of reducing uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and so I wanted to give students an opportunity to sort of get a first-hand understanding of how they're going about doing that. And, and you mentioned that one thing that, that really surprised you was it had to do with Ersted, who did sure. Danish oil, natural, and gas until they rebranded. Yes, yeah, it's just it's such a great, it's such a 
great story on some levels. I think it, in some ways, they're very much sort of ahead of what I what I think is going to we're going to see more of. So Ersted used to be Dong Energy, so it was Danish oil and natural gas. And starting in 2012, they were, you know, experiencing some financial difficulties, and they really went through kind of a a a, a, a real deep look at as to what kind of company they were and what kind of company they wanted to be. So in 2016, they uh, renamed themselves uh, Ersted Ersted Energy, and they are um, they pretty much wound down all of their coal assets, so only about 1% of their sort of books still have coal, and they are decommissioning or divesting from most of their uh, oil and gas assets as well. So they, you know, not only have they gone through, you know, a name change, but they've also are really very much rebranding and re-operationalizing around green energy, and now they, you know, are very much a, a global leader in offshore wind and uh, just here in the United States as we've seen at least in the Northeast is that Ersted just won two they won the uh, New Jersey uh, procurement bid for offshore wind off of um, Atlantic City and they just recently won one of the bids for uh, for New York so Ersted is going to have a deeper footprint on the Northeast here in the US yeah and now, obviously, the United States is not Europe, and we have a different relationship with coal and gas in this country. However, we are seeing a more and more decarbonized grid every year. Could that sort of like total divestment happen to a utility here in the near future, or are we more likely to sort of increment it? Well, I think what we're seeing now, and I, you know, I'm sure many of the guests that you've had on your show have been sort of have helped to explain this, you know, this transition that's that's happening in terms of, you know, it's 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 not going to happen overnight, so it is incremental. But for if you just look at coal, you know, utilities are using less coal, and you know, there's there's been a real flip in what are what many states sort of energy portfolios look like that used to you know be very heavy on coal and that's 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 on the decline and that's not going to you know ever return to to what it was 10 20 years ago uh, I also think that given where some state and city targets are for um, reducing carbon emissions that in order to meet those new targets that you're, we are seeing decarbonization happen in our energy system. So then what are some of the factors that are holding us back since, you know, this it's happened, it's happened in Denmark, it hasn't happened here? You know, I think, I think there's still, you know, part of it is the politics, right? So we, we have, you know, there's, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, Trump first came to office, he talked about energy dominance, and that energy dominance theme was very much sort of predicated on U.S. production of oil and natural gas. But there's a much more interesting, I think, dynamic story that we're seeing here in the United States, which there's a lot of transition that's happening. There's a lot of different sources of energy that's being used. I mean, you're in Texas. Texas is, like, I think, a fantastic example. I mean, Texas has the most wind, onshore wind in the United States, and yet it's also an oil and gas producing state. So you 
just looking at Texas as a case has added, you know, a lot of wind uh, to its system. Um, you know, New York has very ambitious um, goals to decarbonize and to sort of, you know, they're going so far as, um, you know, certain parts of the state have moratoriums against new natural gas uh, systems being plugged in. So it's, I think you have a lot of progress that's happening, but I think you also have some of the the holdouts, the sort of the people will say it's about cost, it's very expensive to make the transition, but we have a built infrastructure and how do you sort of transition some of that infrastructure to be better equipped to, to meet the demands of the changes. You know, I think it's interesting, so I follow some, you know, different investment funds and that's kind of an interesting area because you have some funds that are publicly saying that they are, you know, no longer going to invest in certain types of fossil fuels. So many banks have already said that they will not invest in any new coal in the United States. And some hedge funds are also sort of moving away from fossil fuel investments and take that as kind of a, a sign of more things that I think we will start to see down the line. I think there's financial and reputational risks associated with holding on to fossil fuel assets in the future. I'm not saying right now, but I do think as, you know, as the urgency and we are in a very serious situation right now, but that as that urgency really picks up and that there's that understanding that I think many investors are starting to sort of understand that, you know, having fossil fuel assets in their portfolio may not be, may not be sort of the best investment over the medium to long term. And Carolyn, I wanted to go back real quick because you, you mentioned wind in Texas and, you know, Texas uh, does produce and consume more energy than any other state in the U S and actually this year, uh, ERCOT, the Electric Reliability of Council, announced that wind power generated 22% of electricity in Texas, while coal uh, only provided 21%. So wind power surpassed coal in Texas this year. And if you look back in, in, 20, in 2003, um, wind power only accounted for 0.8% of electricity right. in Texas, and coal still accounted for nearly 40% at that time. So it is a slow transition. But like you said, we're also an oil and gas producing state. So there seems to be, you know, advancements in some place, but other people would argue that we're still, you know, pretty far behind when it comes to decommissioning or decarbonizing the generation. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I appreciate you bringing up that recent, you know, sort of coal surpass, uh, wind surpassing coal in Texas. Yeah, I think it's not easy. I mean, we're a very big country. So I had to remind my students because many of the students were so blown away by what they, what they saw and heard in Denmark that they kind of just wanted to like, why can't the United States be doing what Denmark is doing? And there is the reality that Denmark is a very small country of little under five and a half million people. So it's easier for them to say we're going to decarbonize and we're going to be fossil fuel free by 2050. And they also have, they have a neighbor, which is Norway, which is 98% hydropower. So they're able to import hydro from Norway. So it's 
the the interconnected system of I think Europe plays into the ability for capacity for Denmark to be as ambitious as it's being. And there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of collective buy-in in Denmark. We met many companies. We met some people within the government. And there, there's not that um, sort of fraught debate that I think in some parts of the United States that, that still wants to sort of maintain and uh, sort of keep a large portion of our energy system dependent on coal. Well, even with that being the case, coal plants are still are still closing in you know in 2018 there was uh, this is according to S&P global market intelligence in 2018 uh, like 13,000 megawatts of coal was retired which was double what it was in 2017 and through 2024 it looks like there's going to be close to 30,000 megawatts more uh, retired even with the even with the changes in policy uh, under the Trump administration so very clearly, uh, it's trending a certain way. It, uh, exactly. Yeah. I was just sorry, because I, as you were saying that, I was like, yes, yes, yes. I mean, because the market, I mean, you just look at market fundamentals. I mean, the cost of solar and wind has come down so to such a degree that it's competitive with coal, it's competitive with natural gas. So that old argument about renewables can only exist with subsidies has been kind of that, that whole argument has been upended because of the dramatic decline in the cost of renewable energy. But how do we maintain reliability through the wind down to our full decarbonization? I have great confidence in in our utilities and what they what they are able to do 365 days a year 24/7 and I, I think that they're being very um, careful and they're being strategic about how they make this transition I am confident that there's um, I think we're not going to do it with one single source of energy so I think here in New York for example you know when we're talking about by 2035 2040 having nine gigawatts of offshore wind you know 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind given the fact that we're starting right now with zero is um, is pretty tremendous. But when you talk to the New York ISO and you talk to people from NYSERDA, you know, they are very, very confident that New York can do this and that New York can do it. And there's not going to be, we shouldn't be concerned about block, blackouts and the system is a reliable system and will continue to be reliable and that we're enhancing resiliency for the future. You know, you have a unique perspective as an educator to get a good understanding of what the next generation is focused on, what they're excited about, what kind of issues they're trying to tackle. So what are you seeing from your students in terms of areas or certain projects that they're really interested in, they think will help contribute to the decarbonization, but also continued reliability and the resiliency of the grid? Are they really interested on, you know, decarbonizing the generation fleet? Or is there other interest in maybe things on the distribution side, energy efficiency, distribution automation, getting more renewables on the distribution side of the grid, DEs? 
Well, a little bit of the latter. I mean, I would definitely say kind of across the board, I, if I just sort of gave you a sampling of some of the projects that my students are engaged in would kind of give you that sort of understanding that there's not one, I can't sort of say that there's like one area that the students are predominantly interested in. Um, I have a student who's actually working on a project in Jamaica, and Jamaica's been, you know, it's interesting that some of the, a lot of island states in the Caribbean and elsewhere heavily relied on diesel for for their power generation. And, you know, Jamaica's actually moving to LNG, and she's been working with some people in Jamaica in terms of what around that transition, um, but I have students who are working on deforestation efforts in, in the Amazon and students who are who are down in Houston and different parts of Texas, some of whom are in the are in the oil and gas world and some of whom are sort of working in on the utility side. I have a student here who's um, actually with Con Edison and he's been looking at EV infrastructure and how a utility such as Con Edison thinks about the growth of EVs that is uh, forecasted to hit New York City and where are we going to put charging stations and what will Con Edison's involvement be. Um, so it's a lot of different places where students are interested in, in terms of issues that they're interested in. And I have a number of students who um, who come from different parts of the world. So I have some students who are back in, uh, former students who are back in Mexico who are sort of working on Mexican energy security issues and students who are in South Africa. And South Africa, of course, is a very interesting case, not just around energy, but also around water security. And he's involved with the, the, the ministry in, in South Africa. So it's, uh, it's one of the great things about working with students is you get to hopefully help support them in their studies and then watch them just take off and, you know, hopefully go and do great things. I think that's really cool that you're seeing your students kind of go spread their wings across the globe. And it also reinforces the reminder that we're dealing with many energy issues here in the United States and that we can look to other places for ideas or solutions. But also there are global energy problems, just like there are global climate issues. So there are people needed, minds needed all around the world to help tackle some of these issues. Um, just one one last thing. What is a message you would like to give to the utility executives of the world, the decision makers of the world, in what they should be listening to from the next generation? Well, I'm sure the utility executives in some ways wants the consumer uh, to better understand sort of the complexities of what it means to operate a utility and to understand sort of the what it means to kind of keep the grid running reliably, right? So that we, you know, we all have the electricity and the power that we have come to rely on day to day for our lives. You know, the classroom is a great place to sort of like really ignite the imagination and to really sort of think about the world that they want to live in, in addition to better understanding the world that they do live in. So I think students are, many of them are very excited about what's possible and they want to be involved in the transition that we're making. So one is sort of seeing the, how young people can get involved and seeing how 
the skills and the knowledge that they're gaining in university classrooms, right, around the country can be tapped into to take utilities to that next level. Kind of a, a side anecdote, a couple of years ago, it's actually now going probably back about eight years ago, I was asked to moderate a panel and it was looking at you the utility of the future and did this panel and had two great people, someone from Con Edison and someone from Citigroup. And at the end, a couple of people who were in the audience, they said, oh, I had no idea that utilities were so interesting. Like I just this is this has blown me away. I didn't really consider and I think that's been a real change in the energy narrative is that my students again going back, you know, when I first started teaching in in twenty oh five here at NYU, I had very few students who had any interest in going to work for a utility. And now they actually find it a really exciting place to to think that they can make a difference. And I think that's been a really great thing to to see and to expose them. So we're doing a lot more to help students understand how the grid works and to understand what a utility does and to understand power markets and all these kinds of things so that they can sort of take that knowledge, understand that data, and then be, be able to, to apply it. So I guess I would say to the utility executive to kind of get to the heart of your question is that there's a lot of great talent and there's a lot of young people who really do kind of want to get involved and they want to they want to make careers in energy and given the awesome sort of challenges that we confront that what greater place tap into than young people who have sharp, bright visions for what we can do, not just today, but also into the future. That was a great answer. Thank you, Carolyn. And thank you for uh, coming on today and talking to us about decarbonization trends. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so very much for having me. I, I so enjoy your podcast and thank you for all the great work that you're doing. And I have to give a shout out for ETS because I attended ETS 19 and I was, yeah, so impressed and I had such a great experience. So I'm uh, looking forward to ETS 20. Thank you very much. And we look forward to seeing you there and discussing more of these issues with you. Aaron, thanks for coming on for the big decarbonization talk. Of course, well, thanks Dylan. Again. Thank you. You can find our research and media at etsinsights.com. You can find us on social media at DY Lockwood, at Aaron Hardick, at Z Prime underscore research. Solar Storage Fest is coming up August 28th and 29th in San Antonio. You can find more information and registration at ssfest.co. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.